Chapter 6 of The Man Who Missed It by W. H. H. Murray. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 6 The trapper flung open the door, and, lifting the man bodily from the sled as if he had been but a child, carried him into the cabin and placed him down in the great armchair that stood in front of the fire, while his sister removed his cap, overcoat, and wrappings with a quickness and dexterity which only a woman brings to the performance of such homely ministries. It took but a few moments of time for the trapper to examine the young man's ankle, which, when he had done, he proceeded to dress with its proper wrappings. For in his checkered and eventful life, on march, in battle, and in hospital, he had no little practice in practical surgery. You certainly had a pretty sudden slip, and you've got a pretty bad strain in the ankle here said the old trapper as he was preparing to wind the bandage on to the extended limb, and a strain in the ankle is even most as bad as a crick in the back. Neither one of them is enough to learn a man his mortality, as I conceit. It's certainly strange how the giving out of some little joint or cord or bone in a man's body will kink him up as much as it does. The old hymn says, said the girl, speaking in a bright, cheerful tone, strange that a harp of a thousand strings should keep its tune so long. "'That's a goodly number of strings,' said the trapper, answering her bright look with a face that broadened and beamed in its good nature. "'That's a goodly number of strings, Magnet, for an ordinary size instrument to have. I was up in the fur country nigh on to ten years ago, where the Injuns and half-breeds hunt for the company, and I don't conceit that a meaner set of human beings be on earth, for atween their thieving and their drinking and their murdering, they keep an honest man pretty active.' You see, I went up there to sort of see the country and have a good taste of trapping as I used to know it, for I'd heard that fur was plenty in them parts, and the country not overcrowded. So I just went up there, and picking out a couple of good streams, I went to work in an honest sort of way. I hadn't been there more than a week before half a dozen of the half-breeds, with two or three Frenchers, dropped into my cabin one night to warn me off. They was a pretty noisy set of chaps, and arter a good deal of blustering, they said they'd give me just two days to get out of the country. Did you go, John Norton? asked the girl with her bright eyes fixed on the old trapper's animated countenance as he continued to wind on the bandage. Not exactly in the two days, Magnet, said the old trapper, looking up with a gleam in his eye that chilled the humor of their expression. I sort of argued with him for a while. I told them I'd come up to see the country and get acquainted with their way of doing things and have a sort of breathing spell, that I didn't mean to do anything wrong or make any enemies. If they had any streams they especially liked, seem as how they was natives, I'd stand aside and take some poorer ones. You see, Magnet, I talked sort of easy to them, for if there was to be a fight, I wanted to be on the right side, and I concede that a man who tries to get along without a fight is on the right side of it, if he has to go into it arter all. I hope you didn't have to fight, did you, John Norton? asked the girl. It got pretty near it, said the trapper. Yes, it got pretty near it, repeated he as he held up the coarse needle that he was trying to thread between the fire and his eye. For I burnt considerable powder off and on afore I got rid of the critters. You see, it was sort of unreasonable, and they wouldn't listen to sense. And after I found they hadn't any judgment, I left off talking. What did you do, John Norton? said the young man whose face showed that he was following the trapper's experience with intense interest. After you left off talking. Well, you see, answered the trapper, 
They was unreasonable, and there wasn't but one thing to do. I certainly think this needle hasn't got an eye to it. I wish I could get a needle that a man could get a decent-sized string through in less than half an hour's punching. There wasn't but one thing to do, continued the trapper, having at last, by the sheerest luck, found the eye of the needle. You see, they got to talking louder and louder, and then they went to sort of handling their knives and edging around me till I conceded the thing that had gone about fur enough, and so I reached for my rifle, loosened my knife a trifle, and spoke to the pups, who certainly seemed to understand their lingo, for their bristles was up and their teeth was looking sassy. So I just reached for the rifle and spoke to the pups, and we educated them half-breeds for about five minutes, and gave them our ideas of the matter. I shouldn't have thought, said the young man, that you could have held your own against them all, "'There was considerable doubt about who owned the cabin for a minute or two, answered the trapper. "'For though there wasn't any of them very big size, yet they belonged to a nimble breed, "'and a nimble fellow in a scrimmage is a man you have to look out for. "'But the pups was a good deal of help, for they didn't like the smell of the critters from the first, "'and they showed considerable earnestness, and I got rather riled myself in the talking, "'for they was mighty sassy, I can tell you.' And so when I let loose on him, I did it with a feeling of a man who got worsted in the talking, and got to make it up in the doing. Yes, it was a lively time for certain, said the trapper, laughing to himself. For though I didn't burn any powder, for you see, Magnet, I didn't want to do any violence, I only wanted to sort of educate him a little, and give him the main points of the case, as I understood the rights of the matter, I did use the rifle stock a little loose, and when that broke, I reasoned with him with a small bench that was in the cabin, till the cabin got too small to hold anything more than the bench and the pups. For the bench can fill up a good deal of room, if you handle it a little loosely and ain't too particular what it hits. Did they let you alone after that? said the young man. No, they didn't, said the trapper. They pastored me all they could, but I stood my own for nigh on a month, and they hadn't been playing their devilments on me more than a week before it got to be a good deal like old-fashioned times, and the man that could send lead straightest and get to cover quickest had the best of it. I stood my own as long as I conceded it was safe, and then I gathered up my traps and took the back trail, for the whole country was actually swarming, and they followed me nigh on to fifty mile, and we had a good deal of dodging and shooting along the way. But I got out of it alive, and it brought back one whole skin, anyway, and that's more than a dozen or more of them could say. I don't see why you should run risks, John Norton, said the girl, merely for the sake of a few skins. Risk, answered the trapper. There wasn't any special risk, as I know on, for there wasn't any of their tricks that I hadn't seen afore, and I could just tell about what the sneaking critters would do. If I had only had Henry with me, and the lad, and the boy had liked the fun, we would have stayed, and trapped the season through. And we'd picked our streams, too, for with one good rifle in the cabin and two trusty pieces on the trail, there ain't half-breeds enough in the north country to drive them out if they made up their minds to stay. There, said he as he finished sewing the bandage and stuck the needle in the lapel of his coat. There, young man, you needn't worry about your ankle. The pain is about out of it now and you'll be using it as well as the other in a day or two. And now, said he, rising to his feet, what shall I call you, young man, and what can I do for you? You are to call him Tom, said the girl, and you are to call me Magnet. 
We've got other names, of course, by which we are known in the city, but we've come up here to be children, Tom to get well, and I to help him get well. So call him Tom and call me Magnet. Won't that do? And the girl looked brightly up into the old trapper's face. Certainly, certainly, said the old trapper, laughing. One name is as good as another if the man that owns it is contented with it. If you want to be children, you shall be children, and I'll call you by the names ye have said. But you asked us what you could do for us, John Norton, she replied. Certainly, Magna, that's what I said, responded the trapper. We want you to build a house for us, said the girl. A little log house, just like this, right beside yours here somewhere. And we've brought everything in to furnish it. It's all down on the load with the teamster, bedding and chairs and provisions and everything we need. And if you'll only build us a house right here by yours and let us live with you till Tom gets well, I shall be the happiest girl in the world. Will you do it, John Norton? Certainly, Magnet, certainly. I've built a great many housing, as you call them, in my day with nothing but an axe. And I can throw you up a cabin in a couple of days. And snuggin', too. You can live as comfortable at it as a squirrel in his hole. But we want to board with you, John Norton, continued the girl. We want to come over and eat at your table and stay with you all the time while we are not asleep. May we do it? Of course you may, said the trapper. And ye shall have enough to eat, for venison is plenty and fat this winter. The girl stooped and whispered to her brother for a moment, and then she looked up to the trapper and, hesitating, said, How much will you let us pay you a week for our board, John Norton? I don't understand you, said the trapper. And he looked from the face of the girl to the brother, and then from the brother's face to hers, and again he said, I don't understand you. A fine color came into the girl's face, and she looked at her brother and hesitated a moment as if studying for the best possible way to say what, woman-like, she was determined to say, and then dashing at it with a charming frankness to became her so well, she burst out, We are not poor, John Norton. We are rich. We have all the money we want, and more, too. And we don't want to be beggars. We want to pay you for all your trouble, and we shall be a great trouble to you. So do tell us what we shall pay you. Magnet, said the trapper, I know little of what you call money, and I need little. For the wants of a man who lives according to nature are few, and his needs be easily met. You and your brother have come to my cabin, and you're welcome to stay, and all that's mine you're welcome to, and as for your money I have no need of it, and so that is settled, and as you have told me your names I will tell you the names of them to be here. The dog on your right, Magnet, is Sport. The one on your left is Rover, and they be well-bred. You'll find both companionable arter their kind. You'll find Rover a little slow and ungiven to play, for the dog is aging, and years make a man and dog alike grave and steady. And now that you know the pups, I'll introduce you to my friend. Children, said the old man, turning toward his guest, who came forward from the corner of the room in which he had been silently sitting. "'Children, this is a man who came in trouble to my door, and I made him welcome. He has had his griefs and his sorrows, and he calls himself the man who has missed it, and I don't gainsay his name, but I call him Friend, for that is a shorter name, and as between he and me it answers the purpose of our companionship. The dog you see by his side he calls Lucky. I don't conceit the reason of the name, but that doesn't matter.' The dog is a knowing dog, and Lucky is his name. 
"'And now that we know each other,' said the trapper, "'as if slightly relieved that the introduction was over, "'Now, friend, and children, since we all know each other, "'we can all feel that we are at home.' "'And so saying, the old trapper seated himself, "'as did the others, around the great fire, "'that roared and crackled and flamed its flashes "'and spangles of light and vagrant gleams "'into the otherwise dark recesses and corners of the great room.' So the four were sitting on Christmas Eve in the cabin in the wilderness. In the cities, chimes were being tuned in preparation for joyous Christmas morn. Parents were busy in those secret ministries of love which makes happy the hearts of the children, and children themselves were sleeping, dreaming happily of the morrow. Save here and there a child, perhaps, that had no parent, had no love to make ready gifts, had no happy Christmas morrow and into whose uneasy slumber would come that night no bright vision of gift and happy festival. "'Children,' said the trapper after a few moments of silence, "'my friend here was telling the story of his life before you come in, Magnet, and though I have knowed a good many folks that had their struggles and have had some disappointments myself on and on, little setbacks such as a man is likely to get in, a scrimmage or a square standoff fight, where a good deal of powder is burnt and a knife and the rifle stock is used careless-like, yet I never knowed a man in all my life that has had anywhere near as much uphill work from the beginning as my friend has, according to his telling. For you see, children, to start with, his mother and father was lost at sea when he was a little babe, and all on board the ship was lost with him, and the little babe as he was was the only being saved. I've read in the scripture that the Lord notes the little sparrows, and sort of keeps an eye on the foxes, though I don't see exactly the necessity of that, for a fox be a cunning critter, and I never knowed an old mother fox that couldn't take care of herself, and her kittens too, if there was an average run of rabbits, and partridge was ordinarily thick. Still, I don't doubt what the scripture says, you understand, and I suppose that the eyes of the Lord be sighted to see everything, and so he couldn't overlook, if he wanted to, the foxes. I suppose, said Magnet, that in the sentence you have quoted, the Savior was comparing his poverty with the birds and the foxes, and meant to suggest that while the birds had their nests for a home and the foxes had their holes, he had no home on the earth. The old man deliberated a moment as if the girl had suggested a new idea to him. Then he continued, It may be as you say, Magnet. It certainly looks sort of reasonable as you think of it. But there is difficulties in accounting for it, unless the camps in his country was a good way apart, or the people unnaturally stingy, for he couldn't have struck any region here in the woods and fetched a trail through fifty mile, and not found a man to take him in and give him a good welcome, and a cabin, if the joints of a logging be well made, and as well placed as to wood and water, and the game is any way plenty, isn't a bad place to live in, especially if a man happens to be without a home. But it may be as you say, Magnet, only they must have been a mighty mean set, take them as they run, when the Lord was on the earth. They were, John Norton, said the girl. They were hard-hearted and cruel, and they hated him because he was good, and he came to make them better. I hear the missioners say that that was the real gist of the matter, answered the trapper, but they didn't put it as well as you have, Magnet, for they made a good many words about it and sort of mixed things up so that me and the pups had to do a good deal of counsel in other words to make out just what they meant. But if he hadn't come, continued the trapper, looking toward his friend, he wasn't any worse off than my friend here. 
for the only home he had was a poorhouse, and it wasn't a very comfortable spot either for a mortal to enjoy himself in, as he pictures it. And then the worst of it was, you see, he didn't know his name, for his mother and father was drowned when he was a little babe. And a man without any name is as bad off as a dog without any name. Nobody knows who he is, and he doesn't know who he is himself. And my friend here didn't know who he was. And, as he says, he hadn't mother nor father, nor country nor home, nor friend nor name. And that's a count that brings a man to the last skin in the pack, as I can see. But certainly, said the girl, casting a pitying look toward the man who had missed it, who was gazing with a sober expression into the fire, but who, in answer to her look, lifted his eyes to her face as one who would take the beauty and goodness of it as they who are hungry take food. Certainly he found friends at last. Yes, said the trapper, he did, and good friends too. It took him from the poorhouse and gave him a home with him. How many were there in the family? asked the girl, and she looked not at the trapper, but at the man who had missed it. There were three, answered the man. The father, my benefactor, and he spoke the word with falling inflection of reverence. His wife and one child, a daughter. Now, said the trapper, You've got nigh to the point where we was at when your coming broke us off, leastwise pretty near it. You see, my friend, who was a boy then, growed up with a girl, and as was natural, they growed to love each other. The wedding day was set, and they were actually in front of the minister, who was to marry him, and something happened. What happened then? asked the girl eagerly, and she and her brother turned their faces quickly toward the man who had missed it. The man who had missed it again lifted his face to the girl's, and said in a calm, steady, but infinitely sad tone, My bride fell dead at the altar. The faces of the two young people were a study to see. How full of finest ministry to the sorrow of this world is the expression which the faces of the sympathetic can give us in our trouble. The girl rose quietly from her chair, moved to the side of the man who had missed it, and lifting one of his hands held it for a moment in both of her own, and then she laid it down on the arm of the chair and quietly reseated herself. The dog Lucky came round in front of the girl, moved up to her side, and lifting his muzzle gently, caressed her hand resting on the arm of her chair. The dog's a knowing dog, said the trapper, nodding to the brother. There isn't much going on in this cabin that he don't see. I'm a little uncertain about the cross, but he's got a good breeding in him somewhere, if it is a good deal mixed. Now, friend, said the trapper, if you feel like it and the children don't feel sleepy, I would like to have you take up the trail of your story where magnets come and crossed it and carry it on a little. And I certainly hope there didn't anything else happen of evil after your bride was taken away from you. For if there did, it certainly looks as if the Lord had overlooked you in the appointments of his mercy with which he tempers the lot of the weak and the unfortunate and levels the ups and downs of life to some sort of a respectable average. John Norton, answered the man, my bride had scarcely been buried before another calamity almost as great as her death befell me. Friend, said the trapper, if I didn't know you was a truthful man, I should certainly doubt the story you be telling me. For of all the men I've ever seen that had woes on the earth, and my eyes have seen human trouble enough to make me at times doubt if the Lord is mindful of his creatures, I never seed a man that had gained so little and missed so much as yourself. And now, friend, be careful of your words, and make nothing larger than it was. But tell me plainly what sort of evil happened to you next, 
The man looked into the face of the trapper with clear and steady gaze, and then, as if he would pick the fewest possible words to describe the greatest possible grief, he said, My benefactor died. End of chapter 6